morning. We are back in the book of Revelation. And uh, I'll ask you to turn to chapter 15. We're actually going to cover 15 and 16 today. And as I reflected on this passage, I realized that a lot of the book of Revelation, the difficulty with it is not just because it's full of symbols and because it's full of cryptic imagery and dragons and demons and beasts and smoke and earthquakes. It's the content. The content is rough. And so I want to ask you to join me in a word of prayer. Ask the Lord to allow us to sit at the feet of his word and allow his word to shape us um, without apology. Just let it do what it's intended to do. And we need God's grace for that. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful to you for your word. And even where it might rub us wrong or be difficult to ingest, uh, that's us getting in the way. And so we confess that we struggle with things that you reveal in your word sometimes, um, and that we need your grace to understand it well. And we ask for that now as we approach this passage in this tremendous book. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, today's text, Revelation 15 and 16, is a description, and in many ways, a description, a profile of a particular attribute of God that doesn't get a lot of airtime in churches, and that is the wrath of God. The wrath of God is not, I think you'd agree, it's probably not a, a top five popular attribute that we sing about or pray about or talk about. Um, we don't like it in people a whole lot. You know, if you describe someone as, a, he's an angry dude, that's not usually a, a praise. Uh, we talk about uh, wrath, wrathful expressions on the highway as road rage. That's a, a scary thing. That's not a thing we love. I can't wait to commute because road rage. Um, you might hear gamers talk about rage quitting. Or the gamer rages, so he breaks his console. Um, we don't like rage, you know. He rage quit and left the team. Like, not like, oh, let's have him on our team because he rage quits. So rage, wrath, anger is not, we don't typically see that as, a, as something that we would compliment someone on. But let's think a little deeper about it. It's not actually wrath that we dislike. It's unjust wrath that we dislike. We don't like wrath when it's not fitting. The angry dude is an angry dude because he's angry all the time. He's angry at everybody. It's not that he was angry one time. It's that he's, he just kind of is angry all the time, and it doesn't make sense. Whether it's this or whether it's that, he just kind of responds to everything in anger, and that's what we don't like about it. It's not that he's angry. It's that he's always angry, and that doesn't make sense. It's unreasonable. Road rage is irrational. You put your blinker on a little too late, and they want to run you off the road and kill you. So your crime was this, and they want to punish you with this. That's road rage, right? It's, it's not fitting. It doesn't fit. And you have the right to be frustrated with, you know, your, your gaming friend who rage quits all the time because he's leaving the team hanging. It's not that he was upset. It's that he takes it out on everybody else or takes it out on the console and then asks mom to buy a new one, right? That doesn't, why were, you, why were you so angry? Why did you smash the console to bits? 
Ah, oh, because I didn't get that metal or whatever you were chasing in the game. And that doesn't compute. But we all understand that anger is appropriate when it's suitable. When it's suitable, we don't have an issue with anger. We just hate it when it's unjust. We hate it when it doesn't fit the crime. When it does fit the crime and there is no anger, we hate that too. When there should be anger and there's an absence of anger, we don't like that either, right? So you think of the couple who are asking their daughter, how is it going with the boyfriend? Actually, I've been, it's really been tough for me to admit this to you, but the bruises you've been seeing on me, actually, he's been hitting me. Oh, wow. Well, what's for lunch? Now, how do you immediately feel about those parents? Angry? Yeah. Why? The absence of their anger, where there should be anger. So we don't have a problem with anger. We have a problem with misplaced anger. We have a problem with anger that uh, is unreasonable, shouldn't be there uh, for that thing, for that thing that they're angry about, or anger that is there, uh, is not there when it should be there. So today's passage, I think, is going to help us understand the wrath of God, the wrath of God. And rather than approaching this passage with our little box of what God should be like, we need to take the box, blow open the doors of it, the walls of it, and allow the text to shape for us what God is like. And you can take it or leave it, but I I urge you to not leave it. Because when we ditch God because there's something about him that we can't stomach, we lose, not him. And I assure you that God is beautiful in all his attributes, as we're going to see here. Even his wrath is a beautiful and appropriate attribute of our Heavenly Father. I already asked you to turn to this passage, Revelation 15 and 16. If you're here with us for the first time, we've been moving through Revelation chunk by chunk. And as I've shared with you before, Revelation can be broken down into seven cycles. This, I think, is the only sermon in the entire series that will cover an entire cycle in one shot. Okay, this, each cycle covers the church age. Uh, but this one is a little unique because this cycle focuses more on the, the end of the cycle, the end of the church age, when it's culminating and, and wrapping up. This cycle is in line with, if you remember and if you're taking notes, it's in line with seal number six and trumpet number seven. Okay, so we saw six seals, we saw seven trumpets, and those are just ways that, that John is communicating his vision of what the church age is going to be like. But if you remember, the sixth seal is the one that kind of just ends everything. That was where God just opened everything up, and he's like, we're, we're done now. I'm done, done playing around now. And everything is destroyed, and similarly with trumpet number seven. All seven bowls that we're going to see here are kind of that culminating final stage. Okay, and they're the pouring out of God's wrath, and that's why we're going to see uh, sort of a profile in God's wrath today. And the primary thought to understand here, right as we see in the first four verses, is this. The wrath of God, and this might surprise you, the wrath of God prompts worship of God. 
the wrath of God, God's final pouring out of his wrath, is viewed by his conquering saints as an occasion to worship him. Now, I, I didn't give Ben this task to ask him, go through all our songs and pick out the ones that worship him for his wrath. We might have had one song, maybe. But when you read this text, just these four, four verses, notice with me that it lays out God's wrath and then the saints that have already conquered on this earth, so it's this heavenly scene. They've already done their journey. And when they see God pouring out his final wrath on the earth, they're not like, ooh, <laughs> just look the other way. They bring their harps out. Are we there yet? I don't know. But this text wants to get us there. Check it out, the first four verses. John writes, then I saw, chapter 15, then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing. Seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. That's why we see this sort of, the seven bowls are kind of the end of the end. And they describe it as great and amazing, not scary and makes me want to not read Revelation anymore. It's great and amazing. What's great and amazing? These seven plagues. Why? Why is it great and amazing? It says it right there, for with them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for you, your righteous acts have been revealed. I don't know about you, but growing up in Christian, Christian circles, I think we spend more time going, a sea of glass? That's gonna be, can we swim in it? How about the fact that it's describing God's pouring out of wrath and the saints' response is, great and amazing are you. That's where Scripture wants us to be, and if we're not there, we're missing something, not the Bible. Great and amazing? Yeah, it's great and amazing because it's just and true, verse 3. And so the response is to glorify God when he does what is right, when he does what is fitting. God's not a rage quitter, a rage console smasher. Right? Jesus would never be caught in road rage, but he did flip some tables. So which one is it? Well, was the flipping of those tables appropriate when they were fleecing congregants? Yes. He's not an out-of-control king. He's a just and true king. And that means that, it's not, he, that the wrath isn't the only thing that he pours out. It's not the only attribute of God. But even that attribute falls under the category of great and amazing. And our response is to worship him. So we've seen the seven seals. We've seen the seven trumpets. Now we see the seven bowls, which especially portray God's wrath on wickedness on the earth. 
And then we see the saints sing a song about it in verses 2 to 4. These are the saints who conquered the beast and its image. That means they refused to engage in false worship. They stayed true to the Lord. They don't bear the mark of the beast because they bear the name of Christ. They're worshipers of Christ. Their worship is represented in this song of Moses. It's called echoing the song that the Israelites sang. You remember when they were delivered from Pharaoh in Egypt. So God uses plagues to rain down his wrath on Pharaoh because Pharaoh's oppressing his people until Pharaoh loosens his grip and he gets his people out of there. And then they, in the wilderness, they sing a song, right? And that's, that's what this is saying. God's wrath is an occasion to glorify God as it was for Israelites when they were rescued in Egypt. It's also called the Song of the Lamb because Christ's sacrifice is at the center of the victory of the saints. Christ's sacrifice is at the center of it. It's the core. And the lyrics of the song are about how God's ways are so great because they're just and they're true and they're so just and so true that all nations will give glory to him in the end. But his acts that are being revealed in Revelation, these acts that they're glorifying him at the end of verse 4, for your righteous acts have been revealed. What acts are being revealed? The wrath bowls. The bowls of wrath. So this means that biblically speaking, saints who make it to the end understand something that sometimes we miss. Saints that make it to the end see something clearly that we're still fuzzy on sometimes. And that's this. God's wrath is great, amazing, just, true, holy, and righteous. I'm just pulling the, the adjectives from the text. God's wrath is great, amazing, just, true, holy, righteous, and after it is finally poured out, all the nations will glorify and worship God. Now you can think of one category of person that simply hates the idea of God having wrath. Maybe that's you this morning. You just hate the idea that God can, ha- can possibly be a wrathful God or a God that has wrath. They either hate God because of it or they recraft God into some graven image that they can stomach. A God that is wrathless. But another category of person, if that's not you, you might honor God's word just enough to just accept it. You merely accept that God has wrath. You don't love it. You can't be the first category of person because that person is reshaping scripture, right? They're, they're, they they want to sharpie marker out the verses that are ugly. But, oh, wrath. Ooh, skip. Let's get to the lamb stuff. Yeah, the lamb stuff. Why is Jesus a lamb? Why does Jesus suffer? Why wasn't he just beheaded? Why did he take all the torment? God's wrath is poured out on Jesus so that it's not poured out on you. You cannot escape the doctrine of God's wrath because then you can't understand the cross at all. Why a cross? Why torment? Why a gnarly death? That whole Passion Week is all about God's wrath. So, you could be one category of person that, because of your inability to stomach it, you mold God into something worshipable for you. Or another category of person who just accepts it. Don't love it. You don't love it, but you just have to wrestle with the fact that Scripture says it. And that's not a good place to be either. 
this passage actually is asking us, I think, to notice what, how the saints act. The saints that aren't struggling with sin anymore, they made it. They crossed the finish line. What are they like? They're not the first category or the second category. They don't just accept it. Well, okay. They love him for it. The saints appreciate God's wrath to the extent, that, to the point where they worship God because of God's wrath. And that third category is the person that the text wants you to be. Of course, there's probably a fourth category of person who loves the idea of God's wrath because it excuses their own wrath. They hate people. They can't forgive people. They're racist. They're bigoted. They can't forgive. They can't show mercy. They can't show grace. And they have a distorted picture of the biblical portrait of God, and they use that distortion to excuse their own wrathful behavior, and that's not a category to be in either. So I hate the concept of God's wrath. I love the concept of God's wrath on these two extremes. But the middle place where it's like, well, I don't like it, but I have to stomach it, that's not a place either. It's rightfully understanding what God's wrath is to the point where it prompts worship in the heart of the saints. How in the world could we ever get there? Here's how. The central point of this passage, I think, is that God's wrath prompts worship in true saints. Why? Because it is a holy attribute of God. The Bible's not apologizing for it. Like, he's mostly great, guys, but there's just this one thing. We just have to be honest with you because Scripture's true and we need to write what's true and there's just this one thing to apologize for. He's mostly great, though. He's mostly great, though. So focus on the great stuff, but you do have to understand this. The Bible's not tripping all over itself to protect your feelings. In fact, it wants your feelings to come alongside what's true about God and loving it to the point where it prompts worship in you. And it can only prompt worship in you if you understand wrath as holy, a holy attribute. So this text, I think, gives us six reasons why God's wrath is holy. And I'm going to walk you through one at a time. Six reasons why God's wrath is a holy attribute. And if it's a holy attribute, it actually prompts worship in the saint It will never prompt worship in you if you're not a believer. So if you're still on the outside, I I hope that this makes you reconsider your position. Outside of Christ, we are under God's wrath. It's true. But I understand, I hope you understand that from the Christian perspective, there's a reason why God's wrath is holy. And we get that perspective from Scripture. So let's walk through one at a time. Why is God's wrath holy? Number one, God's wrath is holy because it flows directly from him, and he's holy. That's an easy point to miss. Wrath isn't the attribute of Satan, and God just accommodates it. Wrath is not an attribute of man, and God is like, oh, I've got to deal with it. No, it actually flows directly from who he is. If he's holy, then there must be a holy version of wrath to appreciate. God's wrath is poured out by God through his angels. His angels deliver it. But it is an active, not a passive attribute. God doesn't just permit wrath to exist. He actively engages in doling out the wrath. Check out 15.5. We'll start at 15.5 where we left off and we'll go to 16.1. After this, I looked and the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was opened And out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with the seven plagues, clothed in pure, bright linen, with golden sashes around their chests. 
and one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power, and no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, Go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. Notice that these angels are God's servants. They've got the white linens, they've got the gold sashes, they come out of the sanctuary. They're like this, this servant function coming out of God's headquarter or throne room. And they operate from God's presence, the sanctuary of the tent, verse 5 and 6, which is in heaven. It's coming out of heaven. This is not wrath that comes out of hell. It comes out of heaven and is directly commanded to the angels to be delivered on the earth by God himself. And like we talked about, these are reminiscent of God's actions in Israel. If you remember the, the, the Exodus story where God delivered him, delivered his people from Pharaoh. So as, you read through the, as we read through these bowls, you get echoes of the plagues in Egypt. I don't think this is saying in the future there's going to be literal plagues, even though the ones in Exodus were literal physical plagues. I think what's happening here is this, uh, God is using the plagues in Egypt, and he's going, remember that? I'm using that as a, as a figure to help you understand the torment and pain I'm going to deliver on the earth. In other sermons, I've made a case for why, how to handle the figurative stuff, and I refer you to previous sermons on that so that we can move ahead here. But even if the plagues are figurative, the pain is real. There is torment, like the scorpion stings that we talked about and the serpent bites that we read about in Revelation 9, that the people are tormented when they're experiencing the wrath of God. And so you'll see how these plagues are kind of channeling the Egyptian plagues. And just as in Egypt, God didn't just let the plagues happen. He used angels to deliver them. You remember the angel that took out the firstborn son of every family? The angel of death delivered that. So it's directly from God's throne room. And this means that the wrath of God is an attribute of God that prompts his divine judgments. We simply can't dance around it or soften it to make it about him kind of just giving permission to, to wrath that is sourced in someone else like the devil or humans or kings or something else. God has wrath, and wrath is God's to dole out in judgment. And he tells the angels directly to do it. Chapter 16, verse 1. And I hope that as I'm saying this, your, your beef, if you have any at all, isn't with me. I hope your nose is in the text. You've got to face revelation. So the first reason that God's wrath is holy is because it flows directly from him. He's directly responsible for it. He's over it. He's the one doling it out. Number two. And I'll recap these at the end, so if you're feeling like you missed it. But number two, God's wrath is holy. And each of these six points will start with those same words. So you don't have to write it every single time. God's wrath is holy because it is deserved. There's out-of-control wrath. There's unjust wrath. This is neither of those. God's wrath is not capricious. It is prompted by man's rebellious false worship. It is deserved. 
We'll see one verse for this, chapter 16, verse 2. So the first angel, here's bowl number one. The first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth and harmful and painful sores, you remember the sores back in Egypt? Harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. I mean, it's not random. Those who say, you know what, Christ, I don't want your name. I don't want to worship your name. I don't want anything to do with you. You cramp my style. You tell me what to do. I don't like it. The beast lets me do anything I want. I can buy. I can sell. I can be comfortable. I'm not persecuted. I can do whatever I want if I worship the beast. God's wrath is on them. And the Bible says it's fitting They deserve it because they bore the mark of the beast. And again, this is not getting a chip implanted into your hand. I I hate to burst your bubble. See, part part of the problem is, oh, God's wrath. (laughs) As long as I don't take a physical mark on my head, I guess I don't have to worry about God's wrath. What does the Gospel of John tell us? Outside of Christ, the wrath of God remains on us. The wrath of God is not particular to someone who takes a tattoo that says 666 on it. If, even if there is a physical mark that we're looking forward to, you already took the mark in your heart, in your mind. You serve somebody else. That is not God. And the text is saying that God's wrath is poured out because of that betrayal and because of that false worship. So this is about a rejection of Christ. Man is designed to worship God. It's just a matter of what occupies that throne. Is it Christ or is it something else? And when people turn away from God, they reject his gospel, they reject his loving overtures toward them, while still taking advantage of all of God's blessings. That's the kicker. I hate you, God. I'm going to go enjoy your blessings. Like life, health, community, careers, pleasures, etc. We partake in his blessings, but we hate him and we'll worship something else that cannot serve us or only wants death from us, and that provokes God's wrath rightly. So the first bowl is sores, just like the sixth plague in in Egypt where the people are covered in boils. And if you remember, the magicians could no longer stand before Moses. They They were imitating all the magic, you know, using the magic tricks to imitate God's plagues. And when it got to the sixth plague in Egypt, even the magicians were so covered in boils they couldn't even keep up with it anymore. But the text tells us Pharaoh's hardness of heart kept them from repenting. And so it will be in the last days. Make no mistake, God's wrath comes upon no one randomly. It's always fitting. It is just and it is true. And there's a reversal here just like in Egypt, turning the tables of suffering. God's people were being tormented and oppressed by Pharaoh and his people, and so God turned the tables. You like to oppress? Here's what it feels like. So it's fitting. Now, number three, God's wrath is holy. God's wrath is holy because it's not about rights. It's not about rights. Ugh. (laughs) This is hard. Some of you are like, amen. Yes, you're there already. But I I tell you, this is hard. God's wrath is not so much introducing suffering as it is removing blessing. Think of it this way. Why are you all covered in sores right now? Because of God. 
any health that we have, any longevity at all. We might want to curse God if we catch a disease. But we should be blessing God when we don't have disease. So God is not going, here's neutral man, here's neutral innocent man, and let me just bust up his existence by adding some wrath to his life. Here's a man that doesn't deserve any blessings at all, enjoys a lot of blessings, and my wrath is pulling the blessing out that you didn't deserve in the first place, but he has the right to, to remove it. Now we go, God, I have the right to health. I have the right to a career. I have the right to children. I have the right to A, B, and C. And God's like, all those are my rights. That's why they're called Blessings. Or grace, the theological term for that is common grace. In other words, grace that God doesn't just give to his saved people, the grace that everybody enjoys. The rain that came down last night fed everybody's fields and crops, not just Christian crops. Everybody gets rain. Everybody gets sun. Everyone has shelter. Anyone could enter into engineering or whatever career and build things and and advance technology. Everybody has cell phones, not just Christians. And everybody else is like, oh, I wish I could be a Christian because then I get God's blessings of technology. It's common grace, but it is grace because it's undeserved. So when God pulls it, who are we to say, how can you take this away? Look at these verses here in verses 3 to 7. And you see how God, God's wrath is expressed in taking away things that are, are his to begin with. He's, his creation meant to bless man. He, he, he retrieves it. Verses 3 to 7. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea, and it became like the blood of a corpse. What did the, the sea? The sea became like the, the, the coagulated blood of a dead body. Thick and dark. It's disgusting. And it became like the blood of a corpse, and every living thing died that was in the sea. The third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. And I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, Just are you, O Holy One, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments. For they have shed blood of the saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, Lord God, the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. Here you have... All the oceans in bowl number two, all the salt water, okay, and then bowl number three takes out the fresh water. And it's all turns to blood. All the things that are living inside of them die. Now man can't use it. Man can't get life out of it, like fishing or, go, you know, whatever you get out of the sea to eat or, or make your life better. And you can't use the streams. You can't drink it. You can't use the fountains. It's all gone and turned to blood. And these bowls cut right to the heart of life, water and waterways and all the life that is in them. And we take for granted all of creation, the life cycles afforded to us by nature and earth's waterways are at the center of it. But it's all sustained by God and he has the right to disrupt the world's ecology. God has no obligation to allow the world to persist in rebellion. He does it, he allows it, because he's patient. But eventually that patience will reach a limit. 
And we see a pause here where the angels in verses 5 to 7 declare how right God is in these judgments. God's wrath introduces suffering because at the pinnacle of man deserving it, they make the saints suffer. So, as the world increases in their rebellion toward God, they will, they will express their rebellion toward God by smashing down God's people. We see it already happening in the world. It's been happening in the world. And I think what this is expressing is that's going to ramp up to the point where God, our Father, is not going to suffer any longer. And he steps in. And what basically he's doing here is going... You like to drink the blood of my people. You like to kill Christians. You like to drink their blood, so to speak. You like drinking blood? Here you go. Drink up. Now, I understand if you're not a believer, you're like, oh, that's, that's really harsh. And maybe you feel like, well, I don't make fun of Christians. But this is where the world is heading. This is where it's going. And in this culmination, God rolls out, pours out these bowls like he did for Israel with Pharaoh. You like to worship these gods? You like frogs? Here's frogs. Where's your frog god? Now. You like the river Nile? You have a god called the Nile god? Use it now. It's full of blood. It's fitting because it's a people who oppress God's people. Christians take a lot of heat from this world, more in some places than other places, but we sometimes mistake being meek and peaceful with lack of justice. Does that make sense? We're supposed to be meek and peaceful, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't long for God to put down the oppressor. It is unjust when God's people are snuffed out for following Christ, and God is just, that means he's going to avenge his saints. You see that throughout the book of Revelation, and especially here. Let's move forward. Number four. God's wrath is holy because it waits until mercy is no longer an option. You need to understand that. God's wrath is holy because it's, it's patient, and God waits. He doesn't just dole it out all over the place. He's waiting, and he's waiting, and he's waiting. Christians are getting killed probably right now. God waits. Some of you have been rebelling against God a long time. Why are you still drawing breath? He waits. That's why. God's wrath is holy because it waits until mercy is no longer an option. God's wrath reaches a pinnacle when, you're, when your parents used to tell you, I'm, I'm up to here, I'm up to here, you're like, why are you so angry? That is a God attribute. I was here, and your disobedience got me here, and I'm telling you, you're on thin ice now. Now I'm here. And a parent giving you those warnings, that's good stuff. The parent that doesn't have any limit, what do your children start acting like? So God is using the book of Revelation to warn the world. I do have a limit. I do see what you're doing. Stop crossing the line. Because I will pour out my wrath. His wrath reaches a pinnacle in these chapters in the book of Revelation when man is so recalcitrant, so defiant, so stubborn, 
that there will be no repenting, no matter how much blessing, no matter how much suffering. I want you to notice this from the text. No matter what bulls God sends out, because he, he has six of them before the final one, right? So he's going, ah, up to here, ah, now your waterways, now that it's not the final one yet, you still have time. They will not repent. Pharaoh didn't. Check this out in verses 8 through 11. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and it was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were scorched by the fierce heat, and they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. Now, wouldn't you rather say, mercy, uncle, the person who has the power to relieve you of the suffering is the person that you should be going, okay, my bad. I hate you. They did not repent and give him glory. In other words, that's what they should have done. Then it would go away. The fifth bull, verse 10, the fifth angel poured out his bull on the throne of the beast and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and they cursed God, the God of heaven, for their pain and sores. Again, they did not repent of their deeds. You see the emphasis, right? God is doing this. It's not the whole thing yet. It's like the preview punishments. Still an open window. The rain is coming down. The, the banks of the rivers are overflowing. And the door to the ark is still open. And people are still like, nah, it's not, there's not a flood. That's, that's stupid. Until it's shut. So God's wrath is holy because it waits until mercy is no longer an option. Even when the, the door is still open, so to speak, they won't repent, they won't change. They're hardened. And so bowl number four, I mean, it doesn't correspond exactly to an Egyptian plague, except that it's the opposite. God turned the sun to complete darkness, and here he's like, you like the sun? And it scorches them. And then in bowl number five, we do see the darkness, right? The darkness is poured out on the throne of the beast. That means the beast cannot provide light to his own kingdom. His kingdom is shrouded in total darkness, and it looks like the people are driven to the point of madness. But they still refuse to repent. Verse 9, verse 11. And we might think, sheesh, Lord, give them a chance. He does. That's the point. And he is now. Even in the final iterations of judgment, before the final judgment, there's still time to repent, but they will not. That's why no one wants to talk about God. The 9-11 hit, suddenly everyone wants to talk about God. And how long did that last? An earthquake hits and suddenly it's prayer vigils everywhere. And then once everything's rebuilt, where are the prayer vigils at? So we already see previews of catastrophic events that should remind us we are very fragile, we are very puny, we completely need God's grace and mercy. But then we go, eh. That's what man outside of Christ is like. Two more, number five. God's wrath is holy. God's wrath is holy, meaning worthy of our worship, because it stands up for his oppressed people. I've already touched on this, so I'll try to make this one quicker. But God's wrath is holy because in it, he stands up for his oppressed people. God's wrath isn't just against certain people, it's for other people. Chapter 16, verses 12 to 16. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet, 
three unclean spirits like frogs. There's the Egyptian stuff again. For they are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. And they assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. Now, there are plenty of sermons online that spend a whole hour on Armageddon. I'm not doing it. I don't think the point of this is where's Armageddon? When is Armageddon? Who's at Armageddon? The point is God's wrath is holy because he sticks up for his people. That's the point. So why do we have the image of the Euphrates here? We've seen this before in the book of Revelation. It stands for God's restraint, that river that would keep people from charging Israel uh, whenever they wanted. And just like God dried up the Red Sea, he dried up the Jordan River to let Israel pass through. In the Old Testament, he promised to dry up the Euphrates so Cyrus can come in and conquer Babylon, if you remember that whole scene. So now, God is using that familiar imagery of this sort of barrier that gets removed. He's saying, I'm going to remove the barrier that I ha- currently have in place. Restraining wrath, I'm going to remove that barrier so that God's uh, enemies can actually gather. So that Satan can gather all the nations, sort of uniting them. Now, of course, some Christians believe that there's going to be a physical human leader, the man of lawlessness, that actually unites all the nations, uh, and maybe that's true. But at the very least, Satan, even if it's not an official new world order that you see announced on the news, he's still uniting nations that might have different flags, different governments, different rulers, but they all what? Hate God. And he's uniting them to oppress the church and this i think might culminate in the end in this sort of final climactic scene where churches are really being oppressed to the point where god has to step in and i think that's the battle of armageddon quote unquote sorry to disappoint uh maybe some of you i don't know but this is a culmination and these nations are led by deceit. Now, are, are, are three human figures actually spitting out actual frogs? And as the frogs are hopping along Chicago, people are going, ah, oh, yeah, I'm going to worship the false beast. It doesn't make any sense, okay? But it's symbolic of in Egypt when, when God produced frogs and they produced frogs. Remember, the magicians were kind of just showing, hey, we could do that stuff too. And the devil uses his minions to show up the church. Right? You think the church has unity? Hey, we provide unity. You think the church's community? Hey, we'll provide you community. You think the church has this? We have that. Okay, And that's why it's a false trinity. You see that false trinity there? The, the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet with the three frogs? It's, it's not God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. It's this mimicry trying to convince the world to worship the beast instead of God. So there's too much to unpack here. I'll just give you a quick word on Armageddon. What is that? It, it means the mountain of Megiddo. That's what Armageddon means. Armageddon means the mount of Megiddo. It's confusing because we know where Megiddo is, and it's not a mountain. It's a plain. And so, again, people are like, where is the actual mountain of Megiddo? It's a plain. It's a field. It's, a, it's where you would gather to battle, a flat piece of land. The fact that it's a mountain, I think, is figurative. It's figurative. So... It's a culmination between all of the devil's human employments against the human employments of the Lord. This battle that we're already in, 
we're, we're going to see that culminate. And the devil snatches people up and recruits them to his army by performing signs, verses 13 to 14. But God's people, can, that ain't it. They can, they can sniff it. They can tell that's not the voice of the shepherd. They stay true to God. They're always ready. They're always awake. And they won't be exposed. They won't be caught naked. We might say, don't get caught with your pants down or something like that. It's an awkward image. But that's, that's the comical image that Revelation is using. When Jesus returns and you're still playing double agent, I'll go to church, but I'll also do what I want. This whole thing, he's saying, wake up. Why? Because he wants you to be ready. He wants you to be on the right side. Even if it looks like a losing team now, it's the team that wins in the end. Join the team that wins in the end, even if it's uncomfortable now, rather than the reverse of joining the team that makes you comfortable now, and then you're uncomfortable forever. It's God's grace that he gives this vision to John to put it in our laps so we can see what's coming and not be fooled by it. God in his wrath will defeat the enemy who fools people and rallies them against the church, but we're urged to stay on the right side of things and then rather than being defeated by God's wrath, we'll be on the team that is actually rescued by God's wrath. And that's why the saints appreciate it. That's why the saints appreciate it in Revelation. We appreciate God's wrath because he's standing up for his people like a parent who doesn't stand by while some grown adult bullies your child and you're just sitting there munching on your nachos. A good parent stands up and does something about it, right? God is a good father. Finally, number six, God's wrath is holy because he will not allow evil to persist forever. He will not allow evil to persist forever. His judgments will culminate in a final outpouring of wrath that finalizes his judgment for all time. Let's finish the text, 17 to 21. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, It is done. And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake such as there had never been since man was on the earth. So great was that earthquake. The great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. And God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. And every island fled away, and no mountains were to be found. And great hailstones, about a hundred pounds each, fell from heaven on people, and they cursed God for the plagues of the hail because the plague was so severe. Bowl number seven is poured out in the air, maybe because Satan is the prince of the power of the air, Ephesians 2, 2. Or maybe just because all the other bowls were like hitting specific objects, and this is just like, this is just in the air. Everything. This is the final culmination. In the Old Testament, we see the storm cloud portrayed, this lightning theme, thunder cloud, is when God would descend on Mount Sinai to communicate with Moses. It's his awesome, fearsome, intense presence. And we see the storminess surrounding the presence of God throughout Revelation, chapter 4, chapter 8, chapter 11. So this storm cloud thing is God, this is it. This is him coming in his fullness. And we saw this earthquake in climax back in seal number six. The earthquake is that, that end, the final one. And here it's just given from a different perspective. In other words, it is the end of verse 17. It is done, right? It is done. So there's not going to be 17 bowls. It, it, it has a limit. And then when the final one is there, the final one is there. The city of Babylon represents man's rebellion. 
We're not supposed to pull out a map and try to figure out what city is Babylon. I really hope it's not Chicago. As one author put it, any city for which the shoe fits, the Babylonian shoe fits, will experience God's wrath. Pretty sure that's every city. I mean, these are at a time where God's people are minority and being crushed by oppressors. And then there's nowhere to escape. Right? There's no islands. You can't, you can't flee to an island. You can't flee to a mountain. There's no Helm's Deep for the Tolkien nerds. Right? There's no refuge from God's incoming wrath. So he, he breaks up the city, and there's no other non-city place to go to that's going to help you out, I think is what the text is saying. Once he pours it out, it's over. And here's my appeal to you. As uncomfortable as this might make you, uh, there is a refuge. Now, there is no refuge outside of Christ. So if your refuge is in how good you're acting, how good you're behaving, if your refuge is like, I'll just clean that up a little bit, that is not a refuge. There's only one way to appreciate God's wrath as someone who escapes it rather than hating God forever being underneath it, and that is to be able to sing the song of the what? Chapter 15, verse 3. The song of the Lamb. That song that praises God for his wrath is called the song of the Lamb. The wrath that should have been on me was taken by the Lamb, Jesus Christ. And then all those who oppress us are not protected by that, and they rightly get the wrath of God. But we can escape that wrath in the Lamb that is Jesus Christ. That's the only way we can even appreciate God's wrath and worship him for it. If we agree with God about the true nature of sin and rebellion, then we repent and allow him to provide us with refuge. I don't like his wrath toward us or me or anyone else in the world when I don't agree that it's that bad. Our rebellion is not that bad. We're just excusing it. Like when you catch your kid doing something, you're like, well, I mean, you know, my brother does it too. Or, you know, they're trying to soften the blow by excusing the behavior and what scripture is doing is no 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 you need revelation not just this book of revelation but god's revelation to help you understand what sin actually looks like how cruddy it actually is in the light of god's holiness but there is a way to not be crushed by it there is a way to escape it and that is in jesus christ there's a ton more here i'm going to save it for our class tonight uh, so we can uh respond to the Lord in, in song. I want us to think about how difficult texts like this uh, are calling us to appreciate something that we might not pay attention to if we didn't have passages like this. And one of those things is to understand God's love in a new way. God's love when we should have had wrath. That, that, that puts it in a stark contrast that helps us appreciate what God has done for us to appreciate all of God's blessing, all this food we're about to enjoy, this weather that so far looks pretty good, right? That we don't just go, good, that's what I thought. Don't give God praise for it, but if it rains on a day where we didn't want rain, we're like, oh, God. See, that's how unbelievers behave. They take all of God's blessings and hate him when any of them are not going their way. But the Christian's different, right? We understand that actually God's Appropriate demeanor toward man's rebellion and sinfulness is wrath. And it's right. It is right. It is just and it's true. 
So I need to inform myself from Scripture just how bad was I really. You know, when I came to Christ, how bad was I? Like, what are the depths? What, what was the depth of that rescue? Maybe your mind was boggled when you saw the ocean gate, the actual depth of the Titanic. And then I Googled, what is the deepest part? The Titanic is at 12,000 feet. What's the deepest part? 30-something thousand feet? It's mind-boggling. And the more you read Scripture, the more you realize, oh, I thought my sin was 50 feet. Some light was penetrating. And the more you read Scripture the less you point at other people and go, look how deep their sin is, and you go, actually, I was pretty irretrievable. There is no man-made submersible that can get down there and get me except the long reach of God's grace. The door is open, the table is open, and there is no reason to experience God's wrath for eternity, but there is reason to grab a hold of His mercy through Jesus Christ. And to understand that he'll protect you, he will guide you, and in the end he will put down evil once and for all. Let's pray. Father, we need your grace to grasp any portion of scripture, but especially a passage that talks about an attribute that we misunderstand because when we're wrathful, we're so often unjust in it. Um, we, We mangle it. And we don't express it in holy ways. But when we look at how this passage describes you, we're challenged to see that there is a right way to have wrath and that you never step out of line. You're always true. You're always just. And we thank you for the currently open escape hatch. I pray that anyone in here this morning who hasn't used that, who hasn't clung to Christ, that you would convict them. Help them to not point fingers at other people. And help them to not hate you for revealing truth. Do something in their heart, Lord, like you did for the rest of us so that we appreciate you telling us the truth so that we can reach out for your grace by your mercy. The rest of us, Lord, encourage us, God, as we watch this world and it it angers us to see sex trafficking and rapes and murders and mass shootings and especially the senseless killing of Christians just for following Christ, Lord. It it does anger us. And uh, we thank you that you didn't put it in our laps to do something about it, but that you promised you'll do something about it. Our focus is to promote Christ as often as we can. Help us to do that and massage that into our hearts, Lord, I pray as we close in this song. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Would you stand and we'll close in this song?